0: All right, here we go in three, two, one. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, a podcast to promote and improve your practice as an athletic trainer. Just an upfront, anything said here today is not legal advice directed at you. Tammy wants to make sure that everyone understands that this is not legal advice. If you ask a question, this is not legal advice. This is general guidelines, encouragement, ideas, but not legal advice. Having that said, out of the way, we'll probably say it a couple more times. Just understand, there is no direct legal advice here. This is just general guidelines. Tammy Gaw, an athletic trainer and lawyer, and Joseph Hacker are looking at their practice within your within your state. So we're trying to help you, or trying to help me know how to practice within my state because I looked at the Texas State Practice Act and there were some things that were unclear. So we're going to kind of talk about that how to make sure we're being compliant, everything inside of the State Practice Act. As always, if you're watching live, comment in the Facebook Live chat and we'll try to get those questions answered as best we can. Again, knowing that it's not direct legal advice. This is slash practice within the law. Again, sports medicine practice within the law. All right, Joe, in your bio, you mentioned. You are a CPR instructor and 042 in CPR. Give me a quick story.
1: Um, yeah, so it's one of the things that I do joke around about whenever I'm leading a course because there's so much that in those times we, we feel like we've got to be in control. And it's actually best to understand that we are doing everything as we're taught, but we are still not in control. First time, I was an undergrad student. It was my junior year, I believe it was. And uh, I just happened to be first responder as I walked out of a grocery store and a construction foreman had been run over by a 100,000-pound dump truck. Um, It was in the dirt, so it did give a little bit. But turns out that every time you do a chest compression and someone's lung pops out of the side of their chest, they're probably not going to make it. Uh, The Fast forward a couple years ago, I was... In my role at that point as an athletic training coordinator for Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and was at one of the football games on a Friday night in which two of our schools were playing. And I'm standing there having a conversation with the team physician, and then we start hearing screams and calls for help, as well as the uh, the PA announcer saying that we need medics to the uh, the home stands. So luckily, we're the gentleman was that needed our assistance was right behind us. So he had myself and the team physician, we hop over because that then leaves the two other certified athletic trainers on the field to care for the game. And uh, we have to start uh, performing CPR and had to initiate the emergency action plan. And unfortunately with that also, there were circumstances that led beyond where we could control that. And that's with me assisting a, a physician who was trained in an emergency room and was very very skilled it, it was amazing watching him go and he's doing chest compressions while they're taking the gurney away it's what you see in these life-saving movies but it didn't um but what was also fortunate about that time was learning about the 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 programs that the nata had and the ATKers and learning who some of the folks were regionally that were able to step in because it, I was there, but also there were um, college athletic training students there and just providing some help in those difficult times. So I use that just to kind of preference. Hey, we're in, we're in control of a lot of things, but in the end, we're not really in control. And uh, that kind of helps, I think, everyone. And
0: yeah, that, that's a great point about. I know Tammy is a big social justice advocate and talking about the long-term care and health for athletes, especially in the, at the college level. And then if you're thinking about the mental health of the healthcare providers, you know, the, the AT cares, I really appreciate that program. Tammy, tell me a little bit about, tell me what was your favorite thing when you were a full-time practicing athletic trainer?
2: Oh, wow. My full, my favorite thing. Um, it certainly wasn't 5am running. Hmm. Um, I am not, I am not a, uh, I'm I'm not a morning person at all. Um, you know the thing that I miss most about it, and I think it, it it is my favorite, is game day. The you know the rush right before the games start, when you know you're either looking at the athletes that you helped bring on the field, or you know they're just you, you have such a vested interest in the in the outcome. When I when I worked for my baseball team, I would sometimes I'd show up before anybody that's worked in baseball knows you got to be there. 1,000 hours early anyway, but I'd show up and just kind of sit in center field and just stare at home plate. And that was just a lot of fun. But I think when I, the the thing that makes me smile every time is uh, I worked for the University of Oklahoma's football team and just being in the tunnel right before, right before game day with that adrenaline rush, it, it fed me. It didn't matter how tired I was. It made all of the, all of the, the the things that went into building it up and all the the rotten parts worthwhile because I was at Oklahoma pre Bob Stoops. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't have all of that fun. I had two years of two years of Gary Gibbs, a year of Howard Schnellenberger and a year of John Blake. So, um yeah, I think that's, that's probably the, I still have relationships even, you know, 25 years later with some of my athletes. And I think that's just the ability to feel like you, you help them out, but the adrenaline, man, that's where it was at.
0: All right, so let's go from there. What is the most frustrating thing that you experienced while working as an athletic trainer?
2: Oh wow, how long is that list? We got we got three hours for the <laughs> for the podcast. Um, I think it's probably the the overarching answer would be the bureaucracy, and I think that's part of what actually pushed me to leave the full time and go to go to law. There's something very. Um, uniquely frustrating about practicing in the United States when, you know, your, your health care is actually dictated by health insurance. So I think that that was probably the most frustrating thing. Uh, coaches that were just bricks were, were another, <laughs> were another thing. But I think the bureaucracy was that that's why a lot of times when we, you know, we talk about how the profession can be made better. A lot of it links back to, you know, how best to navigate uh, practicing in the U.S. in general.
0: Yeah, so I think that goes leads perfectly. Is the reason that you moved to law is because you wanted athletic training to be better. You wanted, you wanted to fix the things that that I can't fix as a practicing athletic trainer and not a lawyer, right? So I I appreciate your transition, your move, and the way that you continue to to help us grow, even if it rubs some people the wrong way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time, and it won't be the last.
0: All right, so let's start off with the biggest compliance issues. You know, as we're looking at practicing within the law, so it may not be specifically just the state practice act we're talking about, but uh, practicing within the law as an athletic trainer. What are some of the biggest issues that you have seen or biggest complaints you see, whether social media or uh, direct consult? Uh, and Joe, same thing. What are some of the biggest compliance issues you guys see?
2: Um, for me, it's it, it centers around, I think the biggest thing that people are facing is is privacy. Um, because in, in and around, uh, digital communications, that's not just social media, which, um, posting pictures on social media of your athletes can be very problematic. Um, and I'm on record with having objected to, uh, the potential ethics issues of a certain Twitter account that claims Claims to know things about informed consent that they clearly don't. So I would encourage people not to do that. But it's not just the the social media side of it; it's compliance that, or uh, you know compliance and privacy around things like uh, athlete information. Now that betting is allowed uh, in certain states, so that's you know that's really that's really problematic. And athletic trainers are kind of faced with the what what am I, what do I have to disclose versus what. Am I allowed to disclose versus what I should not disclose? And then the third prong of that is electronic medical records. You know, that, that kind of issue around, uh, it, it you know, it, it's not just things like the concussion apps or, uh, various EMR, EMR apps and programs that you use just for your, your documentation. You know, it's got, uh, how do you, or how are you allowed to communicate? with your, are you allowed to uh, text an athlete? Where where does, you know, if you are a HIPAA or a FERPA um, institution, where does that lie? I think that, that privacy in the new age is really the hard, one, one of the hardest things, and I think the biggest compliance issue in general that I see uh, athletic trainers facing right now.
0: Okay, again, understanding that this is not direct legal advice, but just recently, I took a picture uh, of me performing treatment that i just learned cuz i was talking about a course that i just taken and it shows mm-hmm. basically like from the the armpit down on the athlete is is that an issue because there's no identifying information and i didn't say hey this kid or anything like that is that an issue
2: generally and it's, it's funny you asked me the one thing but the thing that lawyers are always notorious for is answering it depends um, but this is, you know, this tends to be a little bit, I can actually give a, a slightly specific answer on that. I, it would be, if there's no identifying marks on the patient, then, you know, you could say, this is what it is. But the way that you get around that or the way that you can help protect yourself is to get informed consent. I mean, that's, you know, even if it seems, hey, I, you know, I wanna post this, are you okay with that? And assuming that the athlete is not a minor, which is an entirely different thing, when you're talking about informed consent of of a minor, don't do it because there's an entire set of uh, of legal discussions about whether or not minors can consent at all, and whether parents can consent on behalf of minors. It's a it's it's not a well uh, it's not a well adopted uh line of argument but there's you know there's arguments about who who can consent for anything for for a minor so if they're not a minor then you know an informed consent can kind of cover your basis to a certain extent particularly if there's not identifying um marks i used to have a we used to call it the wall of weird and this is this is when everybody knows how old i am but you know when you had to actually develop film (laughs) and i still have some of those pictures but they would they would sit there on my on my wall in the athletic training room And that, you know, that's not a problem because they were, you know, I I had permission from the athletes to to have that. In fact, some of them would take the pictures and bring them in and put them on my wall of weird. But that same activity in the digital space can be conceivably problematic. But sometimes you get, I mean, college athletes nowadays, they'll, you know, they'll ask to be tagged in the photo for for goodness sake. um informed consent is always is always the best the best way to go but yeah the when you when you're talking about the 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 first thing that engaged us with this with this certain twitter account was somebody had posted a picture of an x-ray with the athlete's name with the patient's name and and id number and everything and i'm going you guys use your brains i mean come on you don't need to go to law school to know that wasn't a good idea crop
0: it just a little bit
2: Seriously, Like it's a function on your phone.
0: <laughs> All right, Joseph. So Tammy says privacy, electronic medical records. Those are probably the bigger issues that she sees. What are some of the biggest compliance issues you see?
1: Yeah, and what she says is definitely some some of the bigger things that uh, you know, we witness. But I think just uh, for this could be an entry level. This could be a seasoned individual not having that that clear language in state practice acts to really know what that meant and making assumptions is one of the difficult things it think of it as if we were using full medical jargon and language and talking to an athlete a patient a parent that has no training in that whatsoever or maybe they maybe they took just a little bit because we we are taught some of the the basic verbiage that is uh, legal speak i guess i guess you could say but even then i have i find it difficult in some of them going through and going it's so gray and vague and i understand why it needs to be but it doesn't really answer the questions some of the states that i've seen do do a good job in posting hey here's some frequently asked questions that we get Um, can you as an athletic trainer perform dry needling and it gives you the answer because ultimately that's helping them and not fielding all those calls but there's not that easy guide to really guide a lot of individuals through that and but i think where some of the other compliance issues lie it's actually more broad than just athletic training. And it ultimately is because we're siloed into, we focus so much on what are the the medical requirements and regulations within our state, within our profession and not overall that actually affect everyone as a whole, because it's, it is very difficult to keep up with all of those. And you look at the redundancy that is in the federal uh, healthcare re- requirements and guidelines. No wonder it's easy to be lost. No wonder it's easy to not be in full compliance. You think about what a hospital system or any other healthcare organization has to do, and their compliance overhead is so great, and they have folks that do this full time. Who's doing that for us as an athletic trainer out in the field practicing? Doing the best that we can while sometimes having to rely on, okay, is this in, say, my standing orders from my team physician? Or is this, is this how it says I should do it in the, the uh, position statements that the NATA puts out and go from there? So I, I think there's a number of compliance issues that fall under that, but that's kind of the, the overarching that I have seen be the greatest and Now that I'm able to take even more of that 20, 30,000 foot view down, I look back on my career and go, wow, I had no clue.
2: I I want to piggyback on that. I think that's a great point. I've done the same thing when I look back and go, you know, what, what did, you know, and you don't know what you don't know sometimes, which I think is kind of goes to your point of um, there not being a centralized uh, place that people can go. To get answers and things like, I mean, when you talk about the lawyers are intent on making things sometimes, they're supposed to make it as clear as possible. But we are right when you talk about some of these practice acts. I mean, there are in some states, licensed health professional differs from what is included in another state. And that's really difficult because you can't necessarily click on a link and say, well, who is a, who is considered a capital L, capital H, capital P licensed health professional um, in this state? And, you know, I think that's, I think that's a a really great point. I use, um, I use the example of, you know, every lawyer is licensed in a, you know, in a state or more than one state. And within each of those state bars, there's an ethics hotline. And so there isn't, there's a number that I can call in any state and ask whether or not what I'm doing might be The unauthorized practice of law violates any rules of ethics specific to that state bar when i when i worked with an organization that had a dual presence in california and arizona i called both the arizona and the california state bar and said listen i am not providing legal advice in the conventional context but this is what i wanted am i violating the california and arizona rules of ethics and i wish that the nata i think that would be a great investment on the part of the NATA as a whole is to provide that sort of clearinghouse or at least baseline of information. I think that's a great point.
0: All right. So I want to go back to, you talked about medical records. Um, so one of the things that Josh Woodard told me that he sees as a kind of a compliance issue is, you know, storing the medical records for seven years and things like that. Um, and then knowing the electronic medical records that they're HIPAA, FERPA compliant. And again, we've had discussions about what what is HIPAA and what is FERPA and which one do we use when. Um, So that's not what we're really adjusting here. But talk to me a little little bit more about uh, why you said that electronic medical records are one of the compliance issues you said, Tammy.
2: So there's a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, the so... The United States is really behind on data privacy and the rules around it. And so what, what is okay in the United States would not be okay under GDPR, the, uh, the data uh, privacy rules in the EU, for instance. And so you kind of, it's like peeling an onion. So the first thing is to make sure that it's a reputable company. And, you know, hospitals, as you, as you mentioned, um, as Joe mentioned, you know, they do a lot of work to figure out. They have a lot of, of their risk management department and their lawyers spend a lot of time figuring out what would be compliant. So, you know, some of that work is done is done by them. But it, so it's not just a matter of figuring out whether the company itself is fine. But then when you talk about whether or not that really does what it needs to to protect patient data privacy um, is another question. And then when you get into... How are you putting that that information into what is essentially the cloud? So you're talking about not only the end delivery location, but the delivery portal as well. And so if you are hooked to the school's Wi Fi, for instance, is that secure enough to, you know, for the uploading of that kind of information? So, uh, you know, if you're using an app, Are you using that app on your phone? Is that your personal phone? Is that a phone provided to you by the school? How secure is that phone? What happens to that phone when you go? Does that turn over to the next person? There are a lot of, um, there are a lot of electronic things like that, that, that the medical profession as a whole hasn't really caught up with, but that athletic trainers, you know, are on the, are on the front lines of as well. And when you talk about the seven year issue, one of the things that I've, um, that, that I've had several athletic trainers uh, bring to me as a concern is when they're, you know, you talk about the best way to protect yourself is documentation. So you document, you document, you document. Well, let's say you end up five years later getting, that's probably that's a little lot of the statute of limitations. Let's say three years later, you end up getting sued for treatment that happened while you were at an institution three years ago that you're not at anymore. Well, Ordinarily, you would think, well, I'll just look back at my notes, but what are the problematic aspects of you taking notes with you? So you can't, you know, you're somewhat in, in limbo because you're being asked to provide information or answer for treatment that you did that you may not remember. And where are those records? And are you allowed to have access to those? That kind of thing. It's just a, um, you know, you can't, you can't just photocopy it and bring it home with you that's, that's not, that's not going to be, that's not going to be compliant. So I think that's, you know, when you talk about the, the electronic medical record, those are some of the big ones that, you know, when people are asking me questions, those are the ones I see consistently over and over again, is what do we do about that? And the problem is, is that there's not really a great answer. Because if you, you know, the, the, let's say you had, there was a, an issue with an athlete, that happened when you were working in Texas, but now you are at a high school in Oklahoma. What, what are the difference in the, in the rules between Oklahoma and Texas? I mean, it's just, this is why, and I love lawyers, but my God, we, it is, it is really problematic because this is why they make the money. This is why trial, trial lawyers make the money is because there are no good answers to these questions. And so it's incumbent on the athletic trainer to do the best they can to be as up to date on best practices as they can and to at any possible uh, opportunity engage whatever risk management or administrative department um, is involved in these decisions. And I'll just touch on it. We can we can talk more about it later as well. But this is one of the reasons why I advocate so strongly for athletic trainers to uh push to have a seat at the table. Because a lot of times these decisions are being made without uh input of the athletic trainer. And they are, if they're not at the table, they're going to be subjected to whatever decision is made at that table. And sometimes people just, you know, a lot of a lot of administrators um, and management don't know exactly what we do and they don't know how well we do it. So that's, it's one of the reasons why I advocate for athletic trainers to be involved in these discussions as often as possible, because our perspectives are sometimes unique and they're always valuable.
0: That's, that's good. I I feel like as I've been doing the podcast, one of the things I keep hearing is request a seat at the table, request a seat at the table. And again, it is just a matter of, Hey, I would like to be involved in this conversation or asking questions and continuing to ask questions. And then maybe they're like, oh, well, hey, maybe we need to bring Jeremy on as we're making this decision or at least allow him to hear what we're saying rather than just tell him this is what you're going to do and why. Or maybe not even why, this is what you're going to do, so.
2: Yeah, sometimes you don't even get the why. Yep. And I use, I use as an example around COVID, there was a uh, university, Liberty University, put up a, a tweet and I've got, i probably saved it i think i saved the screenshot of it um and it, it was you know this is what we're doing around covid and our sports medicine department is making all of the final decisions and it was basically like here this is their problem if they screw up it's on them and i'm thinking god i hope one of them knew that was coming and i don't know that they did
0: yeah it's, it's a mixed bag because you're like well thank you for the respect and the appreciation but we'd appreciate a little bit of help too
2: Yeah, maybe maybe not drive the bus directly over me.
0: (laughs) Okay, Uh, let's take a look at the State Practice Act for Texas. I've got it in the show notes, and again, I can put a link to it in the description, and I can probably copy and paste it into the Facebook thing as well. Um, So it's 10.12 Scope of Practice. And then so for A, it says a licensed athletic trainer prevents, recognizes, assesses, manages, treats, disposes of, and reconditions athletic injuries, and illnesses under the direction of a physician licensed in the state or another qualified licensed health professional who is authorized to refer for health care services within the scope of the person's license. And then B says the activities listed in subsection C1-7 may be performed in any setting authorized by a licensed physician and may include but not limited to an educational institution professional or amateur athletic organization and athletic facility or a health care facility. All right, Joseph, as you were the kind of the manager for, you said three different States. What does, what does that look like to you right there? As we're looking at the Texas practice act to me, that is very vague saying basically as long as a physician says it's okay, I can do it.
1: Yeah. Uh, My first question is, what does disposing of mean? Um, (laughs) That that part, uh, but uh, aside from that, it's okay. In any of those settings, and it says may include, but not limited to, so really it's wherever that authorization is. Um, One of my my first questions, so it says, under the direction of physician licensed state or other licensed healthcare profession, um, one, who is considered that licensed healthcare professional in the state, and um, it says license to refer for healthcare services within the scope of the person's license, okay? So does, does the athletic trainer and what they are performing and what they say, does that also have to fit under what the person that they are being supervised under has all those same privileges in their state practice act, or let's say it's say we have somebody that's a dentist, and that's all that you can have based on the accessibility, and that's your like that that's a licensed health professional. I'm guessing in the state, but they they don't have under the scope of their practice to do all of these other things, um, or say a chiropractor is that considered under there and so there obviously there's a lot of other rabbit holes that this could go under Um, i know other states that and when you're looking at those settings flat out say cannot do this in these other specific settings that's where you end up not being able to be referred to as an athletic trainer within that setting you're called an ergonomic specialist in say an industrial setting still using everything you've been trained to do and the knowledge of and everything else as an athletic trainer but you are not able to be called that while still performing these duties um and this being vague once again for a reason doesn't leave too much gray area for something um, what about uh, i go back a couple years ago the, uh, the new position statement at that time that had come out regarding um, the, uh, the relocation of, uh, of joint dislocations, okay? Does that automatically then go under there? Or in the state of Texas, and I, and I haven't been able to, like I said, review all of it, is that regularly um, evaluated by the physician Or is that just kind of out there? Is it just a general standing order that's also very gray and vague for a reason? And this might be something that Tammy uh, can help on. If it's gray like that, and there is that position statement that's out there, is it better that it refers to it in like a written standing orders from the physician or not?
2: Meaning if the, if the activity undertaken is not written in the,
1: yeah, it, in, it, in the like, practice let's act,
2: say, but is in the state, is in the standing orders.
1: Well, let's say here it says a licensed athletic trainer and uh, we look at manages, treats the, that mm-hmm. injury under the direction of the physician licensed or another uh, qualified. Mm-hmm. Well, with, relocating a glenohumeral joint dislocation right. and there's the position statement out there and it says it that also says in a quick uh, summary hey make sure that uh, you're trained to do so and that you have the okay by your supervising physician okay hmm. do you then have this little amendment at the end that says okay this is vague and then here's the things and we're okay with you relocating these joints, but maybe not an ankle
2: or a knee. I, mean, I can see that because there is a, you know, a definitive difference between, you know, relocating a shoulder and relocating an elbow where you might be, mm-hmm. you know, potentially putting the ulnar nerve at risk. And that's the one that I use all the time for people's examples. They're like, nope, nope, nope. Mm-hmm. Unless there is a really good reason that needs to stay out until there's some sort of radiological look at that. Um, you know, the way that it is a, that is a really, a, a real pertinent question. And the way that I tend to start addressing that is, you know there are other classes. You mentioned dry needling is, is an example, and I'm not going to switch away from relocations, but that mm-hmm. is a that is something that may not be taught in the now, you know entry level masters and and, and combined uh, schooling. But you could be certified or something like that, specifically in dry needling, or you can prove that you have taken additional courses and things like that. That then can back up the idea that you are qualified to do something. So that, you know, the the not stepping out of what you actually know, is a real is a real key thing. So it could be that having a list, it does help some people to have a list and say, well, you can relocate these joints and you can't relocate these joints. Sometimes that bright line rule is fine. But let's say it's a finger, if we just if we just get really simple with it. And there are, you know, athletic trainers that have relocated hundreds of fingers. And then there's a an athletic trainer who's never relocated a single finger, you know, and someone who's been practicing maybe a month. Um, on their own, I would not recommend that that person be like, well, I'm allowed to do it. So let's just give it a shot kind of thing. Um, so the bright line rule can help sometimes, but it's also incumbent on the athletic trainer to not outkick their coverage and, and, and not just assume because they are allowed to do it, that they know how to do it. Because, you know, with, with very, with very rare exception, you're not going to get sued for not doing something, you're qualified. To, you are not qualified to do. If that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. I, I think that's one of the difficult things, and it goes back to the compliance. Just because we're trained to do a lot of things doesn't mean we can do a lot of things in said states.
2: Yeah, yeah, and you you really hit it on the head. Where the people that are writing these things don't necessarily know what it is that we're trained to do, and so I'm sure whoever you know, wrote Texas is, you know, thought that licensed health professional who's authorized to refer for healthcare services within the scope of that person's license, they were like, that covers everything. That's great. And it does, it has it has all of the issues that you mentioned and, and more when you peel it back.
1: I hate to use an example, not outside of Texas, we're looking at this one, but, you know, gold standard for heat illness uh, evaluation being a rectal temperature. Well, in the state of Kentucky that's considered invasive. And just until recently where they signed a new law that's now allowing for uh, some revisions to happen, that hasn't been completed by the Kentucky Board of Medical Licensure to outline more of what that is, what that looks like. So we're left in a position that still, even though gold standard being that, that is against, that is outside of our scope of practice, say in the state of Kentucky. but. For me in my role, when I was that coordinator, I was licensed in three different states. Okay, but I can go right across the river from say Northern Kentucky to Cincinnati in Ohio or right over in Indiana very easily and be able to perform that now acting under those, those, uh, that state practice act, that, that scope of practice there. But hey, it's nice, but it also makes it even more difficult when you live in an area that you can go, not just in, in your state to practice, but within three, Within a 30 minute period. <laughs> That's always fun trying to remember what state am I in and what am, what am I allowed to do and not allowed to do right now.
2: Well, that was, you know, I mean, I, I spent 10 years in Los Angeles before I moved to DC. And I remember uh, the very first time that I drove from DC to New York. And I was fascinated, fascinated by the fact that I had crossed like seven states in three hours. This is amazing. You can't even get to the border in this long. But when you talk about, you know, D.C., Maryland and Virginia, if you drive on the beltway, you know, you you kind of pull a National Lampoon's European vacation thing. Look, kids, Big Ben. You know, you go Virginia to Maryland to Virginia to Maryland. And when um, to to use I mean, you I, I hadn't really thought to bring this up, but a few years ago, I was the vice president of the organizing committee for the World Police and Fire Games. And that's got. You know, there was ten thousand athletes from all over the world came to Northern Virginia, and that meant staffing essentially an Olympic size event with athletic trainers. And there was a significant amount of work that had to go in to get uh, athletic trainers from Maryland and DC and Pennsylvania and Delaware um, admitted to be able to practice in Virginia in order to show up and provide medical care for all of these athletes. And, you know, it was in some of them, they were literally, they work in Virginia, or they live in Virginia, they work in Maryland, but then they had to get requalified in order to, be, to come back and work 10 minutes from where they live. So it's, you're, you're completely right when you're on a border state like that, that may have completely disparate uh, rules and regulations. That is, that is really problematic.
0: So I want to ask real quick. In, in the standing order going back to Joseph's question, what is disposes of an in, in uh, athletic injury or illness is does that mean something in legal terms different than what it I does thinking? not
2: <laughs> it does not mean anything I mean not in i I actually laughed I was muted but I laughed when you said that because it is um I suppose one could use it in sort of an arcane term of getting past or dealing with or whatever but it is a it is a Lovely addition to, to that, to that sequence.
0: <laughs> All right. So then, now we're talking about the border states, and, and you guys mentioned earlier, you know, having a some sort of cliff notes version, um, and there's currently not any sort of clear cut way on on how to do that. So, what are some of the ways that we can make sure, you know, like we talked about the the joint dislocate the joint relocation and looking at what we have here in the state practice act um it doesn't say can or cannot do that but it says anything that's licensed under the physician so talk to me real quick about the hierarchy so that we can be clear so you have to the state practice act would be like the top and then the physician standing orders and then the position statement below that because that's just a really a recommendation is that is that correct
2: i Jessica, I'd be interested in to know
1: what. Yeah. I'm going to say, you treat that. I'm going to say, yeah, uh, it, it's going to be that, that practice act because that is specific to you and your license in the state. Uh, then else outs- within that, that physician is able to define as need be the standing orders. Uh, they can exclude anything from that, but they can't include anything outside of the state practice act and then we get to the the position statement and if it's not included in your state practice act i recommend that you continue to advocate uh, on behalf of the profession uh, within your state to have that amended and that's where you're having conversations with your local legislators and representatives to try and make that happen but yeah i, I believe that's the best hierarchy and then within there you also go uh with the policies, procedures, and um, uh, restrictions that your employer has. So that kind of fits somewhere in there, whether that's say the school district if you're employed directly through, or is that the healthcare organization that you're a part of? Uh, Yeah, maybe a a athletic facility, uh, whoever else that is, do they have something else that their risk management has put in place that limits and so, although it can be under your standing orders, it could be under your state practice act and everything else. If they don't want you doing it. You're not doing it. I think one of the best, uh, the best things I was told uh, as I was performing early in my career as an outreach athletic trainer that was employed through a uh, physical therapy organization. It was great. We had all these resources, but at the same time, I wasn't employed by the school and I was really fighting on something that I felt strongly on. But ultimately, I was making recommendations. I didn't have the authority as a uh, an employee of the school, and that's something that I just kind of had to remember. And I documented and, and did my my full CYA that way. But I didn't have the authority, so that also fits somewhere in there. I'm not exactly sure where, but it is in there.
2: No, I think that's I think that's that's exactly right, because um, you know there usually a hierarchy would start with more general and get more specific as you went down, sort of being able to funnel it down until you got a clearer answer. And some states that does work that way. But to your point about the risk management side of it and the individual rules, that is very important because when you're a contractor, you are if you are not considered an employee, that can be problematic and it kind of freaks some institutions out because their insurance policies are set to cover certain employees and their policies are in some ways dictated by what their what their insurance uh coverage will uh include and or exclude so you know there is even if your state practice act says that you are allowed to do it or doesn't specifically say that you're not the individual policies of the institution that employs you or the institution under you know who contracts to your employer um, they may have they may have their own their own specific rules that you are absolutely uh, that you are absolutely bound by because if what you don't want to do is get sued and nobody is uh you know the the insurance company is not going to pay to defend that lawsuit because you acted outside of, you acted outside of the, of the policies and procedures.
0: Yeah. So I think something I just realized while you guys were talking is if you work underneath the most restrictive guidelines, then you should be safe. Like, but then it, then you have to take and kind of map out each different thing. Like, okay, well, can I do this under any of these? Can I do this under any of these? Can I do this under any of these? But as long as you work, at the most restrictive, then you should be safe, right?
2: That is, I wouldn't necessarily use the word safe, but you're, the the sentiment is the sentiment is a correct one. Okay, um, because anybody can sue for anything. <laughs> See, that's that's what people that's what people is sort of a, a misnomer. People say, "Well, I've done all of this; I can't be sued." Frivolous lawsuits are a thing. Um and they're more prevalent in some ways in the US because we don't have a centralized nationalized healthcare system. And so in some places you're you're suing for medical bills. And in countries where medical bills are not, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for tearing your ACL, then they you know, the 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 litigation landscape is is somewhat different. Um but what taking the most conservative position can do is it, it helps to defend that lawsuit. Because if they come and say, you did this, and you show up and you say, no, this is what I did, da 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 da, da documented, justified, you know, explained, showed within the, the uh, parameters of whatever regulations, be it the State Practice Act, policies and procedures of the institution, that sort of thing, um, the standing orders, then that is when you put yourself in the best position to have the lawsuit dismissed so that's sort of a semantics that i get caught up in it's not necessarily that you can prevent yourself from being sued but what you want to do is provide yourself with the best possible defense and to be fair in that way in that way that's where the, the the um position statements from the nata come in because you you can kind of think of it in, in sort of conjunction with like an expert that comes in to testify. If, if an expert comes in and says, this is the best practice to be done. This is the gold standard of what should have been done in this situation. Because every, every situation is going to be different. Every patient is different. There's, there are, you know, there are, there are specific aspects of a lawsuit that would have to be proven but the individual facts of the case are always going to be different and so there's no bright line rule that can protect you know if you say well as long as this you know the athlete was this old and had this pre-existing you know didn't have this pre-existing condition didn't have this didn't have this what you want to do is just know that all the facts are going to be slightly different so a position statement which to joe's point when they talk about things like um you know the rectal temperature as the gold standard that's one that comes up quite a bit because the position statement says that's a, you know, that's the gold standard. The, you know, we all know that if you're looking for an answer, that's a gold standard, but there are problems about getting it. And so in that case, are you liable simply because you did not use that measuring technique? Not necessarily, but if you think about how those practice, um, how those position statements can show up to justify why you made the decisions you did. That's when those can be those those can be very helpful. Those can also be very damaging if you just choose to disregard them.
0: All right, I know we wanted to you wanna tread lightly here and again, this is not direct legal advice, but one of the <laughs> questions that came through was does the liability ever fall on the physician, so the the physician who signed off on the standing orders if something goes wrong and kind of what i'm gathering from what we just talked about with this with the state practice act, the local policy, the standing orders, the position statements is if you have taken the most conservative path, you've done the things correctly according to what your guidelines are, then you should be well defensible provided that you either have your personal liability insurance or the employer insurance. Preferably you have both because what I've heard once is that the employer insurance is going to take care of the employer first and then you secondary. Uh, and I'm not a hundred percent sure that's accurate, but does the liability, Oh, that is
2: absolutely accurate.
0: So Does the liability ever fall off, uh, fall on the physician?
2: It can, if they're at, I mean, it's, it's completely possible for a physician to act outside of their scope of practice. So, um, you know that goes to your point about doing due diligence. If you're looking at the standing orders, and you know the physician, I can't even think of a of a, a good example that would be just so out there. Um, but if there's you know if there's something that that physician says you're allowed to do, and you're going, I don't even think you're allowed to do this. You know, <laughs> if a podiatrist tries to tell you you're okay to start a tracheotomy, you might want to ask whether or not that podiatrist is is uh, you know, when when the last time was they held a the scalpel that way. Um, so it, it certainly can, but to your point, it won't defend you by saying, well, they told me I could do it. If there's an argument to be made that even a baseline level of due diligence should have given you a red flag that that was, that that was definitely not something that you, that you needed to do. And I think sometimes there's probably, I can think of, of specific cases where for certain treatments, an athletic trainer might actually have more experience in something than a physician would, depending on what that physician's specialty or practice is. Um, so, you know, that creates an entirely an entirely different dynamic. And that's when you know communication and documentation and getting things in writing. You know, if you're if you're looking for a question, don't call up and make a phone call. Have a phone call, get your answer, and then just proceed to go you know, go off, memorialize that conversation and make sure you know that you have that CYA protection as well.
1: I think to piggyback in there just a little bit, it's, um, this brings up the, the absolute importance of the relationship with that signing physician and that you have an Absolutely. opportunity to educate them regularly and, and, um, and really help review what is your current scope of practice within the state and audit that signing the those orders because they may be under the assumption that more can be done but they can also be under the assumption that you can't do as much as you actually can and having that relationship you're protecting not only yourself but you are protecting the physician yes that physician can also at any given time they feel like they don't trust an individual they can pull their standing orders Therefore, mm-hmm. you can't practice if your state says you have to have standing written orders by a physician. Um, and that just opens that line of communication versus I have this physician that signs it. I don't even know who they are. I've never actually met them. But that's just who does it for, say, our our school district, something like that. Uh, some really good opportunities. And, and maybe it never changes anything. But at least it's a stronger relationship, just in case something is needed.
2: Well, and strictly, I mean, outside of a liability setting, um, again, that's totally spot on. Um, but outside of a liability setting, if a relationship with a physician gives you a chance to learn more from that. If you have a relationship with, you know, an orthopedic surgeon and that orthopedic surgeon is going to let you come and, you know, stand in a stand in an O.R., I mean, that's, athletic trainers should be chomping at the bit to be able to learn as much as they possibly can from that relationship. And so I think that that cannot be stated enough, that there's there's nothing, there's no negative to uh, developing a strong professional relationship with that standing physician. Because, you know, if you, if something happens, you don't want to be that person that something happens, you could have been completely in the right, it was unforeseeable, um, there was no negligence, but you get sued and they're asking the physician for her or his opinion on what you did. And to them, you're just a name in a book. You know, that's not setting yourself up for, uh, you know, the success that you could be, that you could be seeing. So having that, uh, cross entity professional relationship like that can, can benefit you and protect you.
1: And, and, Tammy, don't get me wrong, um, I would. I think I'm safe to assume that any physician that's been practicing any amount of time has probably been more versed in providing documentation uh, that has to be, I, I guess, worded very specifically for legal reasons than even what an athletic trainer could. And so if we're ever in an instance that we have to make sure that our documentation is to a T where it needs to be, It's a great resource to have to lean into that because they unfortunately are in an environment that too often they, they have to provide that, that type of very specific, very needed documentation.
2: I couldn't agree more.
0: All right. We mentioned this earlier when you were talking about driving in one state and you're basically crossing Maryland to Virginia, Virginia to Maryland, Maryland to Virginia back. So talking about crossing state lines, I know there was last year, the year before the practice act or the, the legislation that allowed you to cross the state line and work as an athletic trainer with your team. So speaking of like rolling at the Houston Texans, he can go to Miami or to wherever and work as an athletic trainer with his team without having to be licensed or get that other stuff and all the different states, as long as he's with this team. So talk to me just a little bit more about some of the things that athletic trainers really need to know if they're crossing a state line.
2: Uh,
1: here's a good question. So you're going and you're, uh, so I'm going to follow up your question with a question really. And this I'm unfortunately going to point at Tammy a little bit. Yeah. Let's say you're, you're with your team and you're, as an athletic trainer within your state, you're taking care of your team, but maybe there's an away team that comes And Yes, you are able to uh, take care of them within your state practice act. But now let's say I go with my team and they're going to host a tournament. And it's winter. They're going to host that tournament in another state because seasonally they can. And they're the host school. And further that, the host school is also who provides the medical coverage. And I go. Am I still within my practice act now for my state? Do I need to look at becoming licensed in that other state? Because I would be the medical coverage for another, but I'm outside of my state lines, because traditionally going outside my state lines, I wouldn't also be uh, required to take care of other teams and organizations. I'd be there to service mine. And so I know the colleges, and I, I really hope this isn't a can of worms I'm gonna end up opening, hey, it is winter. We're going to host this golf tournament in the spring in these very cold months because we're from the north or I'm going to we're going to be the host uh, school down in Florida for this softball or baseball tournament. Other schools can't travel with their athletic trainers. What can I do? I but it just it opens up more questions. Unfortunately. Like,
2: <laughs> well, it does open up more questions and of course the answer is going to be it depends. <laughs> um, and, you know, it depends on, it depends on the state. It depends on the, um, the practice act. It depends on, um, the, in, the, you know, in this case, it, there can be specific licensure rules. And that kind of goes back to the, to the police and fire games that I mentioned. There can be specific licensure rules that, uh, may or may not, may or may not dictate that. And this, so the state, the licensure clarity act, was really helpful because it did account for the fact that, uh, athletic trainers travel across state lines. Um, a key part to it that again is the boring part, but really the big deal is that it was to create clarity around whether liability insurance would cover you. So it's not even just, you know, whether or not you are allowed to practice in that state. It's if something happened. And let's just take it real simply. If, if you're with your team treating your team, and something happens in another state, will the uh, liability insurance cover you? Because maybe that maybe that coverage is only written for Texas and not for Oklahoma. So that was one aspect of the Clarity um, Act. But you know, when you're when you're talking about and and hosting kind of gets you know that's almost more of a business term than not it really is it wouldn't matter if you were hosting it or if uh you know you happen to be there and the athletic trainer for another team got sick and couldn't travel you know the the dynamic is still is still sort of the same when you when you look at the the black and white details of it um that's when it depends on what state you're what state you're in um you may need even for a one-off uh especially if it's a tournament kind of thing there is there's probably some accounting that can be done for uh, not the monetary kind, but the, the allotment, if you will, uh, for the idea of a one-off coverage for a large-scale event. And if your school has not prepared for that, you know, if they're getting all the benefits of hosting a tournament in another state, but they're willing to ignore and or dump all the liability on you to provide the medical coverage that's when you need to have a conversation with those with those folks so um short answer it depends uh could be based on the practice acts in the state in which you are traveling to can also be based on uh rules around licensure um and uh definitely be involved in the discussion with your um, with your institution.
0: I had another section highlighted in the Practice Act, but I think we've kind of covered it. It says, a licensee shall not provide health care services which are not within the definition of athletic training in the Act, except in accordance with the state and federal laws and rules applicable to the provided services, including but not limited to Occupations Code, Chapter 157, relating to a physician's delegated authority, other licensure laws, and laws relating to the possession and distribution of controlled substances. Okay, so that seems super confusing, like, hey, you can do this except for this unless somebody else tells you something different. So, offer me a little bit of clarity there.
2: Let's call uh, this uh, a catch-all. <laughs>
1: yeah, and, and uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to step in just for more delay, because I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not a lawyer by any means. Looking at that, yeah, it's a lot. Looking at it, it can be very confusing. It is a catch all though, from what I see in that they're basically just trying to stay, things could eventually fall under this, but first and foremost, don't try and have an athletic trainer, um, doing anything that would put them in possession or distribute or distribution of any type of controlled, uh, uh, substance, anything that's a category one type drug eh, don't, don't even go there but this we could just go and keep this in because other things eventually could fall under yeah that's
2: he's he's spot on joe called that it's a it's the it's the we don't know what we don't know see it's the it's the the unknown knowns or the known unknowns um which like we said earlier can be helpful or it can be a hindrance because that is not a particularly helpful paragraph and so does it apply should we should we assume and apply it applies super broadly should you know how do we how do we interpret that to make and or modify any of our any of our decisions and there's no you know there's no good i don't i don't know what the texas occupation code chapter 157 is off the top of my head so it says related to a physician's delegated authority but i don't know what it is specifically about that chapter that in any way broadens or narrows the rest of this act so it is. It's kind of like um, it's reading these practice acts sometimes can feel like a choose your own adventure novel where you get to a certain page and they say, well, please see section, you know, this this applies except for section 42. And you turn to section 42 and they're like, so this applies except in relation to section 113. And then you go to it and you're going, I, I mean, at that point, you're taking notes that look like a murder board, mm-hmm. just ties everywhere. So, um, yeah, no, Joe, Joe called that.
1: I always tried to, or I, for a long time, I've, I've compared it to reading some of this is like the uh, the first time trying to read the Old Testament and like an old King James version and telling what family tree somebody came from and making sense of it. <laughs> 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 like, uh, wait, and then who? No, I I've just lost three sentences in.
2: Yeah, that's fair enough. You're just, you're just waiting for the word begat to end up in one of these in one of these uh acts
0: <laughs> okay so i think that that's good because that, that does help me understand that that's just saying like hey there's stuff that's going to come up but like you said there's so much it is a choose your own adventure and i uh, you know i think that's a big part of the reason that so many people don't understand what their state practice act, act is because it says this is the situation except for this this and this and then you have to do a whole nother you know a month long study on what this this and this are so um respectful of your time i know tammy is big time on on the radio with australia and everything like that you know calls coming in around the world and (laughs) so uh tammy if someone wants to reach out to you the best way to get a hold of you is
2: um you can either find me through my website advantage rule um like the soccer rule um or you can find me on twitter at tammy gaw and those are the those are the easiest ways was the easiest ways to find me, but um, yeah, this was this was a good this was a good discussion. I, I'm always I'm always happy to be conversing with people that are very experienced in some of these practice acts. I actually want to ask a question of my own. Okay, um, Joe, what would you what would you consider a gold standard of the ones that you've seen? Which is the practice act that you think is either the most comprehensive, most helpful combination of the two?
1: Um, that's a great question. <laughs> And unfortunately, the moment that they're published, something comes out, something changes, there's new research. Um, So I don't know that there is one at this point that is so much better above and beyond the rest of them. But that's where, yes, that is that foundation. But no, it's going to change. And I was just talking to uh, one of our staff members the other day, and one of the things that I keep, I have one of the, the copies from the 1940s of the Trainer's Bible, and it's an amazing reference. And you can look in there and see how much has not changed. But then you get to the part that says you shouldn't use any kind of uh, braces that aren't made of leather and steel because there's nothing that can take place of but still I can use that book and I can teach someone the basic skills. They need to be an athletic trainer all in one book, the very basics and it'll be okay. So that is a foundation much like that. That position statement is that foundation. And then research tomorrow will get published to show there might be a better way.
2: So
0: So, I I know that they had a, it used to be called raise your rank. And I think I talked to Dr. Sam Scarnio about that and i think north carolina was like at the top there as far as like the state legislation and being pro athletic trainer and that kind of thing so i'm not sure if that would answer your question but that would be my guess is north carolina because at that time when i talked to her they were they were the top so i don't know if that helps at all
2: i'm definitely gonna i'm definitely gonna take a look at take a look at that thank you
0: all right, Joe, best way to get a hold of you? Uh, it's probably going to be,
1: and anyone can shoot me an email joe.hacker at uky.edu. Or you can find me on Twitter. It's at joehackeriii. So the third, all, all together. And um, if you can't find me, I, I follow uh, Mr. Jeremy Jackson myself. So you can follow me, and I believe he follows me. So uh, you could find me in that list that'd be the easiest ways.
0: All right. Like you just said, I am Mr. Jeremy Jackson. So Tammy, I know you, I know you kind of got a time limit here. What are That's your, okay. what are your thoughts on the NCAA women's rate room thing?
2: Oh Lord. So we got another, we got another three hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah. Anyone who, uh, has known me for more than about 37 seconds knows that, uh, the NCAA is my, uh, my focus with respect to athletes' rights. And that's from health and safety, that's economic rights, that's everything. So, um, while I am very frustrated with the fact that, um, all of these things are being, are coming out at the expense of the women's sports, it's been relatively helpful for them to all happen while the attention is so, uh, spotlighted on the tournament, because this is not the first time that this has happened. I mean, you know, Mark Emmert's like, hey, so, you know, we're going to look at this and we're going to pay a law firm to come in and look at inequities as if you don't know how to order the same thing for two venues. You know, if you ordered it for the men, you order it for the women. And the the thing that I would point out that people are kind of, you know, they say, well, this is a violation of Title IX. Uh, don't go down that rabbit hole. Because Title IX applies to educational institutions that receive federal funding. Title IX is not at its core a sports law. It's at its core an education law. Um, And there is uh, jurisprudence, a a court case, uh, Smith versus NCAA, I think it was 1999. I think we can take John Roberts. I'm fairly certain he argued it um that specifically stated that the NCAA was, even though their member institutions are subject to Title IX, that the NCAA is not. So while you could look for a lot of uh you could look for a lot of uh enforcement allegations to happen against the NCAA, it's probably not gonna happen under the Title IX, under the Title IX uh, umbrella. But yeah, it is it's they just they, they're they're so good at the own goal. It would not have been that hard to just order the same thing. The swag was another thing. The food was another thing. Um, the, the fact that if any, for the women's tournament, if any of the coaches had, for instance, if they were breastfeeding or had a child that needed to come with them, that child counted against the travel rules, which is just ludicrous. Like, that that's when you know that there are only a bunch of old dudes making these decisions, because a, a halfway concerted thought process would have ruled would have ruled that out. But, yeah, it's you know, the NCA was created in 1905 as a result of uh, head injuries in football. And 115 years later, they're still not focused on the athlete health and safety. So I'm personally happy to watch them get dragged up and down. Uh, Indianapolis and San Antonio roads. I'm perfectly fine with that because the the rights of the athletes, off whose back a whole lot of people make a whole lot of money, uh, is not being is not being paid attention to.
0: I think it's very interesting. Of course, I, I don't understand all of Title Nine. I haven't read it, but that everybody's like, oh, Title Nine, Title Nine, but it's actually really just focused on the education institution, not the sports. But mm-hmm. all right. so Tammy, what do you think is the best resource if someone wants to? Uh, find out more on their own. And then Joe, same question, top resource for finding out more about the, you know, the state practice act, state practice act or practicing within the law.
1: I think for, if you're looking specifically at your state, turn to your local organizations. So you're, you may have that state athletic training association or society. Um, but even then there might be some really good resources and, one that I liked a lot because of the situations that I was in being so close to three different states, there, there was even a greater Cincinnati um, th- that it had from each side of the river. And it kept up on local issues. So if you did cross the border, um, but yes, as, as much as the NAATA has out there, it's not always specific to us. So look to the state organizations, but also do some investigating and find out the things that are beyond that and break down that silo. Uh, Tammy, I'm, I'm just going to make an assumption that, Hey, it wasn't just the same team that planned the men's tournament, the women's tournament. Those were two completely different event planning committees that all had these different, and they were probably so siloed and never even talked to each other to figure out, Oh, we may have done some things very differently that that becomes an issue. So, you know, with that hey talk to your talk to your school nurse talk to your team physicians talk to other people that have anything that touches what you could be dealing with and find out the things you don't know break down that silo talk to those other organizations
2: yeah i i would i would say that and to you know to put in one more organization in the middle that really sort of addresses the uh you know the the regional Areas. It's not just your state organizations, and I have all the time in the world. The DCATA is is wonderful, um, but you know the MAATA, the the actual district, um, can be helpful for precisely what Joe said. The uh, you know the the crossover between state to state because they are they are regional. So when you're, you know, when you're looking for certain things about crossing state lines, that can be that can be a helpful um, that can be a helpful resource as well and i wish i was willing to give i wish i was i had it in me to give the ncaa uh, uh even a modicum of a pass on that but it's not like this is the first tournament they planned i mean you know there's <laughs> this is, they didn't just they didn't just pull this up and in fact this year it should have been easier the idea that it was happening in a bubble should have made it more clear and easier so what you're really seeing is that they've just they 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 just didn't care the, the ultimate decision makers just didn't, just didn't care um, because they, I mean, they specifically withheld the use of March Madness from the women's tournament. They specifically withheld the the ability to use that phrase from the women's tournament. That was a, that was a conscious and proactive decision. That wasn't a, oh, you should think about it. That was, we, we identify March Madness only with the men's tournament. And that's just going to have to be too bad for you. So yeah, I I wish I I wish I would give them any kind of credit for that. But in a year where both teams were in bubbles, that would have been the easiest time to have the catering be equal, have the weight and the facilities be equal, you know.
1: Um, but of r- course, real quick, before we go, um, the other resource, and honestly, I never would have thought about it until COVID world. Your local health department, because it turns out that county health department is going to dictate beyond and gonna be more mm-hmm. restrictive many times than what the state is. And just because the CDC said, hey, go ahead and do, doesn't mean that the state's gonna do it and definitely doesn't mean that your local health department is going to say, yes, that's how we're doing it. So hopefully that's not one of those things we have to keep talking about for years. But just don't forget, your local health
2: department might be a little bit more, more restrictive as well. That is a absolutely Absolutely fantastic point.
0: All right. One of my partners is MedBridge. So if you're using MedBridge, you can use the code DSMB. There's also lots of other codes out there. So if you're looking for somebody to support and you're going to do MedBridge, then make sure you use one of those codes. I know Alicia has one on the AT Advantage and North Carolina has one. So there's lots of them. Uh, There's another one of the other podcasts has one as well. So if you're going to use MedBridge, make sure you use one of those codes. And mine specifically is the smb for the sports medicine broadcast this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash practice within the law again sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash practice within the law for jeremy jackson tammy gaw joseph hacker and the sports medicine broadcast that is a wrap thanks